As a kid, you always found your heritage, half German, half Pacific Islander, to be a little strange. But when you got the opportunity to live on Samoa, your ancestral island, you were surrounded by people the exact same combination as you. And as you started to learn more about your past, you were actually working to help your new home create a better future. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. Samoa and American Samoa is divided by the timeline, by the the international timeline. So Samoa is the very first country in the world to celebrate New Year's, and American Samoa is the very last place in the world. So we celebrated New Year's, got on a plane, and got to celebrate New Year's again, time travel in American Samoa. This week, the difference between Samoa and Samoa, a crash course on human rights reports and how a small sisterhood made history. Join us on a journey from Virginia to Samoa and a return to one's island roots. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. Exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Hi, my name is Johanna Gussman. I am originally from the Northern Virginia area. I did the Fulbright Public Policy Fellowship. When I did it, it was 2014 and 2015. And I had the pleasure of going to Samoa, teeny tiny island in the very middle of the Pacific. My background is actually in law, but I knew right from the beginning that I only wanted to practice international law and human rights law. I had actually been recruited to work with the World Health Organization in Manila in the Philippines, and I just was like, there was something nagging at me, and I was like, this is wonderful, like I'm, I'm international. But when I found the the Fulbright the Fulbright Public Policy Fellowship, I it was sort of instantaneous, like almost how you would say falling in love in first sight. Like there was no question in my mind that like that was the program I was meant to do and find out, found out while I was in the Philippines that I had, had managed to get it. And so was flown back the 12 hour difference um, to do the pre-departure orientation and I've never looked back. I knew that it was Samoa that I wanted to work in. I am first-generation mainland, so my father is Filipino-Hawaiian, and my mother is of German descent, so she's blonde hair, blue-eyed. So I sort of have this very ambiguous ethnicity about me, but I have 
always wanted to see more of my Pacific Island roots. And obviously growing up in Northern Virginia and the Washington DC area, I don't think you can get <laughs> much farther away from island life per se. You know, we always used to joke with my dad, like what, we didn't even grow up in like California and <laughs> like something. That was also a motivating factor. And the interesting thing is, is when I arrived in Samoa, um, you know, and you learn all of this background about the country that you're in. It's actually the only, first and only German colony in the Pacific. So some of my best friends in Samoa, their names are Ludwig and Hans, and, and last name like von Reich, you know, like very German descent. So a lot of Samoans are half Pacific Islander, half German. It was really sort of a seamless kind of integration into Samoan culture because I looked quite Samoan. There's no direct flights to Samoa. At that point, I was on the West Coast, so you have to go through uh, Hawaii. Um, but there's only one flight every Wednesdays that go down, that goes to Samoa. And then if it's not full enough, they just cancel the flight. So I got to Hawaii. The flight was canceled. I was stranded and stuck in Hawaii for three days and was rerouted through Fiji and then got stuck in Fiji for three days <laughs> before being rerouted to Samoa. So I showed up a week late after having, you know, pretty charmed experiences of like the best layovers probably that exist in, in the world um, through Hawaii and Fiji. My experience with Fulbright Public Policy Fellowship was the best professional experience of my life. I was brought in to work under the ombudsman at the National uh, Human Rights Institute. So they had liked the fact that I was a human rights lawyer. They had been mandated to do annual status of human rights reports. My application, I had talked a lot about my gender research and, and, and women's rights. So I had come to insert a gender aspect into that report. got to Samoa, it was really funny because I got to my desk, I sat down and I was like, okay, like, what can I do to help? I'm here, you know, for this, but let, let me hear what it is that you guys would need and da da da. And that right there on the first day, sitting with the office, uh, they said, great, we need you to spearhead and help us to actually write the full report. And so, of course, you're just sort of like, uh, <laughs> I had only graduated law school a year prior, right? I was by no means an international human rights law expert and least of all knew the context of Samoan culture. But I think that was actually one of the best ingredients to make what it is that we were able to do. I think, you know, Samoa being a small island developing state, quite dependent on aid from foreign governments. So many experts, consultants, just sort of sweep through the island, vacation there for a week, write whatever report they need to write, 
leave and there's very little follow-up and actual investment. And I think that's one of the best parts about this specific Fulbright program is really the capacity building and the investment in people that is made because it was an incredible team effort. How do you even begin to figure out what is a state of the status of human rights, let alone write a report that is efficacious for advocacy purposes, for budgeting purposes, for future legal purposes? I think had I come in with any type of ego or fantasies that I was an expert, it would have been a very different experience and a very different report. From the get-go, I said, okay, I want to make sure that this report doesn't have my name on it. This is about investing in the actual Samoan workers who are there, who I am still in great touch with, whom I call my sisters. It was really three young women <laughs> in uh, Samoa trying to find a way to make the community come together around something as abstract as human rights to make this something that mattered. And so with the, the leadership of the ombudsman giving us like the ability to do that and experiment and do these things, it really created what I think was quite a successful document that ended up launching what Samoa is now doing, which is a national inquiry into family violence and how to really address the problems that we found through our outreach and research. Uh, my favorite thing about the report is that it, it, the motto is for Samoa by Samoa. And I think that's the entire reason that it was as accepted and, and um, successful as it was. I am the oldest of five children, and I'm the only girl. So I know very um, well the gender dynamics that can exist, um, particularly in more conservative cultures where there is quite obvious favoritism for males over females, or when the structural hierarchy and the social hierarchy is quite explicitly men over women. And so it was very challenging for me as quite a liberal feminist, you know, I'm like happy to use that word. I think it means equality, but I knew like you meet people where they are in order to actually have people openly and honestly talk about gender dynamics and inequality in a culture to which you are new requires very savvy and open and honest discussions. And so it was really nice that I was able to work with young women my same age and station. There were some tensions when you're a young woman trying to tell somebody what to do, even that that wasn't what I was trying to do, but that's how it certainly would be perceived. And so much of the walls and, and, and barriers were broken through when I was able to go after hours at work 
and share a beer with all the men in the office, all the women in the office together, coming around a table around with food and drink and just getting to know each other. And then because we were able to work through the dynamics within the office, we all came together and we were able to find the best way to, to move forward in the dynamics that exist in the community. So we very specifically decided to do a survey um, where we focused on vulnerable populations and where we went to the villages and communities that may not usually be talked to in this way. Through the surveys and through the literal going out into the community, going to islands far out there, one of my badges of honor that I say as a Fulbrighter to Samoa is there's a teeny tiny island called Apolima that is one of the four major, the four islands that make Samoa. And the, the community that lives there, you have to be invited onto the island to talk. And so a lot of foreigners that are there never get to see this place. And because we had specifically reached out and done work um, to make sure that we could talk to the community there, I had the very wonderful experience of seeing a, a very remote place that I would never otherwise have access to. And then it was through directly speaking with, sitting down with the community, asking them the tough questions of, especially the women, how does it feel? What is something that you perceive as being unfair, unequal? How does that relate to this idea of human rights? You know, understanding very much that that is an imported Western idea, but that it finds its roots universally in many cultures because it's about respect and dignity and, and, and things like that. Because we were able to use that language and because we thought we're thoughtful about how to approach that is the issue of gender inequality, the issue of violence against women and children, the, the very distinctly tough issues to talk about, that's why this report led to a national inquiry into family violence that allowed for more open and honest discussion and allowed for Samoa to decide the best way for Samoa to handle this issue. None of that would have happened without, you know, the leadership of the, of, of the office and, and people coming together and understanding that. It was a, an entire communal learning experience, I think, in that way. say that I was so mesmerized and astonished and thankful 
for ju- how honest people were who were talking with me. I mean, I was a, I was a stranger, you know, like maybe I look a little Samoan, but when I open my mouth, it's obvious that I'm an American, you know, and I don't didn't speak Samoan in a lot of the communities that we went to. That was the language. And so, you know, particularly when we were doing focus groups and the surveys out in the communities, it was really watching the ombudsman and and Keeney and Tracy and other workers doing those one-on-ones and how much people come to life and how much they're willing to share about their very personal lives for the idea of bettering a community, for the idea of, you know, violations being addressed and whatnot. And in smaller communities and islands, island communities, one of the really cool things about working in a public policy space is that you can see from start to finish how policies can change or how people can be directly affected. You know, that the same doesn't necessarily stand true for, you know, a country as large as America takes a lot more time. And so that was really a special thing to be able to, for the year that I was there, see the fruits of your labor, I guess. Um, And that is definitely unique. When we did the launch of the State of Human Rights Report, we did this great big celebration in Apia, the capital, right in the the middle of the city and had um, pretty amazing turnout and a lot of the high officials there, all of the foreign governments, and just made it this wonderful celebration. I remember there was a moment, it was me, Keeney, and Tracy, where we just like looked out over the big fale and you just had this sense of accomplishment that I probably haven't felt to that extent you know even after graduating and getting a law degree and all that like and we just like looked at each other and we looked over at the ombudsman and all of us burst into tears and you know I wouldn't say that we were particularly sentimental group, you know, like, or freely showing of emotions, especially in like such a big, large crowd and, and all of these things. But like that connection and that sense of accomplishment, looking back over all of the experiences that we had had together, I think probably second to that would have been maybe two or three weeks earlier where Keeney, Tracy, and I had overtaken the conference room, finalizing the draft, because it had to be filed with the government at a specific deadline. So it was like the night before that we were still running through edits with large pizzas all over the place, kind of going in and out of like, okay, who's having a mental breakdown now? (laughs) Like, So to go from like that sort of chaos and thinking that we weren't going to be able to do it, to seeing that end product and seeing what you're hard work could do. I think few people get to experience that. And it, and I think we all experience that sense right at the same time.
when I was telling people that I was going to Samoa, people would be like, oh, Somalia. And it's like, no, that's very different. <laughs> very, very different. And you can always sort of tell somebody who has actually been to the island because you will say Samoa, like how you are meant to say it from um, the culture as opposed to Samoa, American Samoa. I, I always describe it as sort of one of the last few untouched places in the world. I mean, there's a reason why the show Survivor has been in Samoa, one of the like most often um, places where they put people for that, because it really is in the middle of the Pacific, very remote. Um, Samoan culture is quite cr- traditional. They still have what you call matais, which would be like chiefs of villages. So it's very uh, much structured in those old traditional ways, the the communal government, and, and they really are a lot about preserving their way of life and their culture. And, and so, you know, you really do kind of feel like you go back in time a bit when you visit Samoa. And then one of the best things, and, and anyone who has served, I guess, in, in a Pacific island, but uh, especially in Samoa, you sort of it's probably the most relaxed I'd ever been in my life, despite doing a very, um, you know, involved and stressful job as, as a Fulbrighter, just because you learn almost immediately, like, what is the difference between a want and a need, right? Like, you can't stream, when I was in Samoa, you couldn't stream Netflix, right? So, you, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I guess I don't need that in my life. Or, you know, you really go back to watching a sunset on a remote island is one of the most beautiful things experiences of my life and you know no binging of a (laughs) show would ever replace something like that you really learn quite quite quickly about um community and and what it is to rely on neighbors and friends for entertainment and and getting together and you know one of the things when we uh when i have spoken with like my australian colleagues and and kiwi colleagues and and other americans and fulbrighters that have returned one of the hardest sort of adjustments and assimilations back into western culture is the like busyness and moving and you know, oh, we should make plans, you know, way down the line. Whereas like in Samoa, it's like, okay, who's making dinner tonight? Oh, you'll go over to this uh, village. And it's just like an entire community that comes together. And there's a whole different kind of value and just a very special experience in that. Nowhere have I found it as much as I found it in Samoa. A real sense of community just kind of replaces every, you know, to an extent, you know, in this highly technologized modern world, I think we are missing that component often of actual real human connection and support systems. You don't have to have make plans months in advance, but you can drop everything and be like, oh yeah, there's a handball tournament. Let's go see Hans win this one. Or (laughs) what is Ludi going to do tonight? All of these things, like you just really, you see why in Samoa, the family unit and the community is such an integral part 
of how the society functions, how different that is from, you know, sort of those very individualistic kinds of values and ideals that, that more Western cultures have. In one of my very last weeks, the ombudsman put together a surprise going away party for me at my absolute favorite beach. They had done uh, an entire cookout for me and it just lasted all day with a beautiful sunset and all of my favorite people coming together to wish a bittersweet goodbye. And anytime I close my eyes and think of Samoa, I think I go right back there in that mo in those moments. <laughs> is produced by The Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of The Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, Joanna Gussman described her time as a Fulbright professional fellow. For more about Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233 and leave us a nice review while you're at it. You can do so anywhere you find your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Did you know? Photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233. Special thanks to Joanna for sharing her stories and teaching us how to properly pronounce Samoa. Ana Maria Sinatine did the interview and I edited this segment. Featured music was Where the River Run by Ketza, Spook Castle by Lobo Loco, Round Pine by Blue Dot Session, and Pearly Shells, a deep cut from my obscure vinyl collection by Billy Vaughn and his orchestra. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time. <laughs>